are tuning in to the Love Breezy Bree Yoga podcast. My name is Bree, and you can find me at lovebreezybreeyoga.com. Check out the show notes for more information, including a link to my website. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste. Hello, welcome. I am sitting here with fan favorite Bianca Lily from Bianca Lily Ballet. She and I are so excited because we actually recorded this entire episode previously. It's all about veganism, but it didn't do it justice for all the purposes and intentions that we have for this particular episode. And so here we are back again with lots and lots to share with all of you. And if you are new to this concept, although I believe that most of you who listen to yoga podcasts have have at least thought about it or heard about it or have some general understanding of why it is good to eat in a mindful way, to live in a compassionate way. But if this is all new to you, well, Miss Bianca is going to share her thoughts She has spent so much time, you guys, really researching the facts, the stats, and this is a huge passion of hers. I know for me, I feel like this is just a regular lifestyle, and I I don't think much about how I go about eating and living, and, you know, I used to spend a lot of time really thinking about this stuff, but it's been really a pleasure of mine to spend time with Bianca over the last year and just really getting passionate about what we could do to serve the animals and to remember that we're all one and to share in that vibration. So I am going to hand this off to Bianca and she's going to jump right in and we are going to have a conversation. Hi, Bianca. Hi. Thank you again. (laughs) I love spending time talking to you. Uh, And I certainly hope that no one immediately feels like they have to just turn off and skip to the next thing. I hope you'll give us a chance um, because I think a lot of people assume that when we talk about this topic uh, that we're trying to make people feel shame or guilt and actually that's counterproductive for for my purposes at least. Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with Brene Brown and her writings and of course she's phenomenal. and. She's done all this work and explained to people the difference between shame and guilt and, you know, shame being feeling bad about who you are, guilt being feeling bad about something you did, right? And uh, how shame in particular really gets in the way of people being in their learning brain and being vulnerable, which is what's required to be receptive to new ideas. So I just want to really emphasize for people that I'm not looking to make anyone feel shame or ashamed of how they eat or have been eating or how their families eat. Um, You know, as we talk about some of the things we're going to talk about, guilt is probably going to come up because as a species, there are some things that are going on in our food production system that are not great. And if you're a person with a conscience who cares about, you know, the world you live in, you know, you're going to be a little uncomfortable with that. Some of those facts but that's okay, you know, I'm not, please don't stay in that space. Know that there's such a great opportunity to bring your values in line with your diet and your life on a day-to-day basis in a really impactful way. And 
really I just want people to, you know, if, if, if feelings come up and you feel guilty at some point, acknowledge it, let it go, and try to be just receptive to the possibilities of some of the things that you and I are going to talk about. Oh, I love that. Yes. I echo everything Bianca said. I mean, remember that this is an opportunity for you to expand in what you might already be feeling and learn. And for those of you who this is already a part of your lifestyle, maybe there will be some inspirational nuggets here that will allow you to continue on your journey and inspire others. I actually do believe that you know, knowledge is power, and the more we know, the more opportunity we have to evaluate how we want to apply those different ideas to our lives. And, you know, for some, they can make a switch overnight, and we'll, we have a particular person who was able to do that, maybe all in the name of love. Um, and then for others, it's a slow journey, and, and for some others, you know, it's part of their culture, part of the upbringing. But for the majority of us, we have to really make a conscious effort and decision to make these changes in our lives. So you're not alone in that, especially if you are of most likely Western culture, um, rather you're in the United States or Europe, um, you're probably a part of the big cultural idea that, you know, we're at the top of the, top of the food chain as humans, right? So um, maybe just identify what comes up for you during today's episode. And if you like, you know, you can journal about this later or think about how you can apply some of these ideas to your life or just maybe put them somewhere where you can come back to them. But I'm with Bianca. There's a reason why you're listening. So take something away from it. Leave whatever doesn't resonate right now. Plant a little seed and perhaps an entire garden will bloom <laughs> one day. That's what we all hope, right? And that's the whole point of this entire podcast anyway. So, Miss Bianca. All right, for those of you who haven't listened to the past episodes, I will link them in the bottom of today's show notes where you can get to know Bianca. She is actually an amazing human, but this wonderful ballet teacher, dancer, mentor, friend, sister, all the things that you can imagine. This is Miss Bianca, just a lovely human. And she has a podcast, which I will link in today's show notes, especially if you guys are interested in learning more about movement and dance and how to apply all of that to your life. Well, she is going to share with us her journey on how she became a vegan because I don't know if uh, this is common in the dance community as it is in the yoga community. I feel like on some hand, I've heard a lot of people in dance, you know, starting to go toward veganism. I'm not sure if it's always for the ethical reasons or more for the nutritional reasons or, you know, whatever. You can share with us some of your thoughts about that. Um, whatever the reasons are, I've heard of people becoming uh, plant-based or vegan and we can explain those differences as well if you want to get political. Um, because, you know, they wanted to get healthier. They wanted to be proactive about maybe some issues that have come up in their own health or their family's health. Or they simply wanted to do this for ethical reasons or maybe one led to the other. What is your story and your journey? And what do you consider to be the main differences between 
just being plant-based versus vegan. I know vegan is a loaded word, <laughs> as it should be. And maybe you can give us some of your thoughts about that. Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, and, you know, just for reference, um, just so people know that there's there's help out there and that there's some credentials behind this. If you didn't listen the last time Brie had me on, which was so nice, uh, I have a master's in exercise and nutrition science. Um, and uh, so I, that's that's part of this. Uh, uh, but that's not how I started this journey. I have been vegan for about eight years now as, as of the time of this recording of this podcast. And I do see it growing in the dance community in certain genres of dance. I will acknowledge that there have been problems in the ballet world with eating disorders. Um, these can be linked back through a very, don't make me get on a soapbox about <laughs> balancing. We're going to put a pin in that. Um, but um, body expectation issues. And there have been plenty of people who over the years have attempted to conceal an eating disorder by following a vegetarian or vegan diet. That should not be conflated with the people who are increasingly taking an interest in veganism, either because they're compassionate artists and this has captured their interest for that reason, also, uh, people who are doing it because increasingly more and more elite athletes are finding that a plant-based diet really helps them uh, recover more quickly. So, you know, even people like Carl Lewis, who is nine-time gold medalist, he talked about how his best years, his fastest years running was when he went vegan, long-term vegan. Venus and Serena Williams, as people know of. There's quite a few of these elite athletes and Olympians uh, for a while now who the last few years have, there's a really interesting documentary if anyone wants to call it called the game changers where they follow these athletes and a lot of them are doing it because they have great recovery and so a lot of ballet dancers are increasingly looking at a plant-based diet as a way and of course we're talking about a healthy plant-based diet because you can be vegan and eat all potato chips and Oreos, but that's <laughs> not what I'm advocating. Um, but uh, a lot of these dancers are finding that um, it helps them, you know, to have energy and recover quickly uh, and to be peak in terms of their performance to have these very plant-centered diets. Um, but that's not how I got into it. I originally started initially on this path because in high school I had an interest in Buddhism. I was reading about that. I ended up reading a little bit about vegetarianism, decided that I was going to give that a try my senior year in high school, much to the concern of my, my mother. And <laughs> there's a great deal of hand-wringing from her, her side on that. Um, but sort of the example that I had for me then that I wish I'd followed more deeply at that time was, um, one of the young women I was in ballet with on my professional track training, her father ended up being our mechanic and he was vegan. We had a vegan car mechanic in the nineties, <laughs> <laughs> like Bob, Bob Mercel. And to this day, you know, what an example he was as a human being. Um, he recently passed, uh, but this man was vegan then. He was vegan for, I think, something like 40 years and ran ultra marathons. At one point, he held the record for being the oldest person to complete an ultra marathon. 
And so, uh, you know, I remember when my mom panicked about me going vegetarian, I was like, well, Bob is an athlete. He's vegan. He's fine. So that was sort of like the first initial little tiptoe forward. And then I went to college where I studied philosophy and I encountered in our ethics course some of the works about animal rights. And uh, in particular, I remember reading an essay by Peter Singer where he had a line that really hit home for me and that I think really captures and the essence of this, which is, uh, I believe it was, we have made animals into machines for converting fodder into flesh. And that captures a reality. And what is at the very base of all of this, at the end of the day, when we get past just the things you and I are going <laughs> to spend a lot of time talking about in this episode, at the end of the day, we're talking about the objectification and commodification of living beings. So that kind of got me moving forward still but I didn't really know at the time about what was involved in dairy production and egg production. So, and then, you know, I spent a little time as a pescatarian, you know, I was just kind of doing this thing in my life, not thinking a lot about it. And then I think there was a confluence of a couple of factors. I actually saw this film that many people by now have seen called Cowspiracy which was a documentary um, about our animal agriculture production system and how much environmental damage it does. And I had always been, you know, very motivated to be part of the, you know, try and be a good environmentalist, um, reduce my carbon footprint for a number of years. I didn't have a car, I just had a motorcycle. <laughs> which, um, if, we had, if I had lived in a place where there was good public transit, I wouldn't have had a vehicle at all. And so for all these years, I tried to, you know, recycle and do all these things. And then I saw Cowspiracy and they just did a great job of laying out the numbers, which if no one's seen it, I recommend seeing it. It really puts things in sharp relief. You really start to understand just in terms of water, in terms of pollution, in terms of land, greenhouse gases. And I had this moment of realizing this, this thing I've been doing for years, which was at that point mostly being vegetarian most of the time, was having far more impact than any of the other steps that I was taking. Just this choice of what I was choosing to put on my plate <laughs> several times a day, every day, had so much more impact than all of the recycling, all of the litter crew pickup, all of the, you know, which all good things to do, but there was just no comparison. And I thought, well, I can go a bit farther. And I had this thought like, well, I'll just go and look for some non-dairy options. And so I went at the time, you know, I went the obvious place where I was like, okay, well, I'll go to Whole Foods. <laughs> and I remember walking into the non-dairy milk aisle. This was like 2015, I think. And when I saw how many, and I, you know, I remember thinking, I'll just try one a week until I find one I like. And then I saw how many options were there. And I thought, oh, this is going to take all year. This is going to, if I try every one of these, this is probably going to take multiple years. That's there, wonderful. Yeah. There were just so many, I couldn't have chosen an easier time really to, to be vegan when it comes to that kind of thing. And, um, you know, for me as someone who likes to cook, 
uh, and who'd gotten in a little bit of a rut with my cooking, and then with this emphasis on, well, I'm just going to keep trying new stuff, it was, for me, a fairly painless transition because I got wrapped up on trying new things and trying new recipes, and it was kind of exciting and fun to experiment. So for me, that piece kind of helped me with the shift forward. I wasn't focused on what I wasn't eating. I was focused on what I, all the new things I was trying. Mm. What also happened at the same time, though, was I was reacquainted with my values in terms of animal rights and ethics. Because the fact of the matter is most people do not approve of animal abuse. And... Yet at the same time, there's this presumption that eating, there's two things. There's a presumption that eating meat, eating animals, eating dairy products is necessary, natural, and normal, which are assumptions that I would love for the listeners to give me a chance to challenge. And then the other part of it is people don't realize the reality, which is that animal abuse is part of our food industry. And at the end of the day, it's an inextricable part of how we produce food if we're going to be eating something other than a plant-based diet. Uh, so, you know, all of the advertising about the happy cows and, oh, this is humane meat, it is almost all entirety, entirely propaganda and marketing. And if people are willing to find out which, you know, I'm going to say, please, please you should. <laughs> if they're willing to find out, they're, they're going to realize that things are being done that they wouldn't ever want to have done. And, and I think for me, the other piece of this is that at that point in my life, I had Lana in my life. So, um, and you very kindly offered to dedicate this episode to Lana, which is deeply moving to me. Uh, Lana was my dog, but, um, you know, she wasn't just my dog. She is the being who came into my life and changed my life. The reason I teach ballet now is largely because of her and the catalyst she was in my life to make change, the courage she gave me to try something and take a leap. Um, you know, the love she gave me really made a huge difference in my life. And then when I started teaching, she just came on board and started teaching too. So students who were part of the studio, um, you know, for the many years that she was around, she was basically one of the faculty. <laughs> like, you know, and there were days where, you know, I would notice that she would do things for people and pick up on things and know that people needed her, uh, you know, in ways that no one else could see. And so when she passed in 2021, um, you know, I was fortunate I didn't mourn alone. She left a, a huge imprint on the lives of the people who passed through the studio. And there were people who came to the studio who said, well, I, I used to think I wasn't a dog person. And mm -hmm. then I met Lana. So she was really a, a remarkable being. and. You know, when you have an animal in your life that you develop a relationship with, whether it be a dog or a cat or a rabbit or a whatever, if you get a chance to know an animal, you get a very personal experience of how complex they are, how they do have personalities, 
how smart they met. Man, Lana was so smart. People try to talk about how animals are always in the present, which I think they are, but like she had forward planning capabilities, <laughs> like sometimes with slightly devious intentions. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I, you know, when you live with an animal that long and you see them making plans or remembering things or figuring things out, you know, the studies show this now. Increasingly, we're getting the scientific peer-reviewed papers that are showing that animals are far smarter, far more emotional than humans have given them for credit previously. If you have had a meaningful relationship with an animal, you know that. And so then the question becomes, well, if that's true, the animal I love, and I know that all these pigs, all these cows, all these goats, they are just as intelligent and emotional and have as much capacity for suffering. Why would I want that inflicted on them, you know? Um, because we can all imagine, you know, how heartbreaking it would be to have the animal that we love in our lives. I mean, you know, honestly, it's a mistake of geography that you and I are both tearing up. It's a mistake of geography that Lana ended up here living the life she lived, <laughs> bringing everything she brought in the gifts she brought to the students who came into the studio. And also, you know, all the, the beauty she had in her life versus had she been born in a certain area of say China or another country or even you know and where they eat dogs mm -hmm. where she would have been kept in horrible circumstances and then essentially tortured to death right so it doesn't take a lot to extrapolate out from your personal life to see that you know we have an opportunity to do things differently particularly uh, if you're someone who can go to a grocery store, <laughs> if you're somebody who has access, you know, if you don't live in a food desert, if you're somebody who can buy from the bulk aisle, if you're somebody who can get vegetables, which is, you know, the stuff you want to eat anyway, um, you know, there's, there's so, there's so many ways to do this. You know, you can be a luxury vegan and go to all the fancy restaurants and get all the <laughs> fancy substitutes. Okay, I'm not sure yeah. I've heard luxury vegan before. <laughs> Let's all pause and enjoy that term. Another Bianca-ism. <laughs> luxury vegan. I love you can that. You be a luxury vegan. Okay. I'm going to hashtag that next time I'm doing something on Instagram. Going to wear online. faux fur right. as a luxury vegan and a yeah. tutu. Yeah. You I'm can, into it. You can do that. <laughs> You can go the other end of the spectrum and buy awesome, you know, the lentils and the beans and the quinoa and the rice of the bulk aisle and all of the wonderful vegetables and, you know, whatnot, um, which at the end of the day are actually, people always say it's expensive, but, um, you know, frankly, like, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but <laughs> honestly, it's not. I've, I've, I've absolutely been, you know, in the grocery store with a whole pile of things and then behind somebody who's buying a lot of meat and dairy and my grocery bill, like I had three more bags of stuff than they did and my grocery bill was like, you know, half of theirs. And, and, and Bianca's constantly feeding all of us little <laughs> dance monkeys here in the studio. Um, I do want to circle back to something you just said because so much has changed recently since we even recorded this episode the first time that never published, right? 
And some of the things that are coming to my mind as you talk about the grocer and expenses is, I mean, there was this huge egg outage and they were super expensive, as they should be. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> um, and, you know, there were tons of memes and everybody was complaining and you go to the grocer and there's just, you know, shelves missing eggs kind of thing. And it really, I feel like, might have made more aware people, especially people who are conscientious of where their money is going, which should be all of us. But And I felt like people were starting to look around and go, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, I am so dependent on these five items, whatever they are. And now they're really expensive or there's short supply. And it kind of goes back to that idea of like, how can I make a big pot of beans and how can I feed a village kind of thing. Um, and I know I'm, I'm jumping all over the place, but so many thoughts are in my mind. And another thought that came up for me in listening to you, B, was the idea that I feel like post-pandemic, people are a little bit more aware of marketing and hidden truths and things that are not necessarily in your best interest, and opposition. <laughs> and um, if nothing else, we did see the lack of compassion and then the pendulum swinging to the opposite direction where people had beautiful compassion and were showing up for each other. So human nature is, is all over the place, right? But I know if you're listening to this, you're probably along the lines of wanting to do better and just needing to know how. And we're hopefully going to demystify some of that for you. I feel like there was a time in the yoga community and you know, we have the eight limbs of yoga and there's these ideas of the, uh, being able to be more ethical in general and there's some there's some controversy around what is meant in those those ideas, but one of them is Amisa, and it's the idea of do no harm. And some people argue that do no harm means, you know, literally do no harm. Going vegan is a part of that. Others argue against that. However, there was a time in the yoga community where I felt like everyone sort of had at least a pinky toe in everything that we're talking about today and we're very open. And then it sort of felt like things took a turn. And I would have to say when we had a lot of the paleo, you know, type going back to your roots and your ancestry and these ideas were really starting to formulate. And I feel like it's human nature to want to be a part of something bigger than yourself and wanting to be a part of community and we're all social animals. So there's a part of us wanting to be accepted and fitting in. And now, I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like in the yoga community, unless you're in a certain subset, maybe like a spiritual subset, that idea of, yes, compassionate living, opening the heart chakra all the way, living at your highest vibration, has sort of been tailored to what works best for you. And, um, I'm having a, a real tough issue with it. And, and I've seen some of that even within myself. So I wanna call, call myself out on that. Maybe not so much with how I'm eating, but also just how I'm showing up in the world, right? Um, and I do believe that 
you know, I, I don't want to get too off track here, but there's a spiritual element, which you brought up too, sort of when you were identifying in high school, taking on this role a bit. There's a spiritual element that we are connected to each other and something or someone, some being suffering and you taking that energy when you consume that suffering, right? Um, and, and it's hard to think of it that way, but that's real mindful eating, right? Um, and there's something that a good friend of mine recently told me was, you know, have you ever thought about the idea that we pray over our food for those of us who send good intentions to our food is sort of to, to maybe take away some of the pain that was caused by the workers, you know, the, the animals, everybody involved that suffered for you to enjoy that meal, right? And I thought that was so profound because, you know, we are we are saying prayers and thanks, you know, we're having gratitude for the food that's presented to us. But what about that idea that we're also maybe somewhere deep subconsciously like sending out that message like, hey, we're we're praying for all that was involved to get get it to me, right? Um, especially since you're not getting it yourself and you're not having to hunt it yourself. I, I know this is a not something I'm I'm the first person to say, but the idea is that if you've had to go out and hunt it yourself, you want to eat it. And if you can, then that that would be a very small percentage of humans at that point. Um, so the fact that we can just walk into a store and just pick it out and, and not have any correlation to that being a breathing, you know, being is, is part of the marketing. Well, I think that the original origins, if you go way back to praying over food, actually goes back to mm-hmm. a lot of indigenous groups. Those prayers come for asking forgiveness or thanking the animal for mm-hmm. giving its life. Yeah. So it was a result of the hunt. And it's become more, you know, it, it was personal, right? So those, those humans were going on the hunt, getting the animal, and then having to go through that process of prayer as thanks, as recognition for what had just happened. Yeah. And then it became more and more divorced from that the further away we got and the more of a hurting society we became because that's what we are. We don't think of our society as a hurting society because it's hidden away and it's industrialized and it's kept in places where we won't see it, like, for example, poor, poor areas, right? Right. Um, but we are, and now it's become, well, I'm just praying because I'm lucky to have this food. And any of acknowledgement of what happened to get that food on your plate has kind of been obfuscated. Yeah. I yeah. think for a lot of people, and clearly not for everyone, but for a lot of people, I do think that, um, you know, the other thing you brought up that's interesting about this on the yoga side is that a lot of people are interested in yoga in Indian culture Mm -hmm. and history, and I think they might not be aware of something that's a growing movement right now in India because, of course, within Hinduism, cows are sacred, so you're not supposed to eat beef but there's still the consumption of dairy. And now there's organizations like Vegan Outreach that have Indian chapters because now 
members of the Indian population are finding out exactly how much they have to torture cows to get the dairy. So there is a growing movement in India itself of new vegan groups popping up and you can find information on this, you know, and you can look up vegan outreach as one, for example, the one that I'm, you know, the most familiar with. Uh, and, you know, I, I was looking at some of their stuff and this is activism that's being brought about by Indians for Indians. And, you know, there's a photo of a calf starving in the sight of its mother, you know, like the calf was dying and the mother was tied up and was helpless to save her baby. Because, you know, I consumed a lot of dairy for many years. You know, I, like, I don't, I'm, it's one of those things, like, I wish I had known, I didn't. It's one of the things that I, I feel more people should know about. But, you know, I thought, I had this very naive idea about dairy. I thought it meant, you know, the cow gives birth once, and then as long as you keep milking it, there's milk. And that's not how it works. You have to get the cow pregnant, and then take the calf, and take the milk and then do that again, over and over and over and over again. And so what people aren't realizing is that we're conducting this violation of the sanctity of motherhood. We have objectified and commodified the reproductive cycle. The very cycle of life so that we can extract the breast milk of these bovine animals or goats, whatever kind of dairy it is, right? And then the children, the babies, they're an unwanted byproduct. And in the dairy industry, if it's a male baby, it's going to be sent off to become veal or dog food or literally thrown away in trash heaps sometimes. If it's a female, she's going to be put into the herd and it's going to be subject to the same fate. And of course, like cattle are herd animals. So they're, you know, motherhood is universal amongst mammals. Mothers love their babies. And if you want to cause great strife, great injury, great trauma, then taking the baby from a mother in a mammalian setting is going to inflict that. And you know, what's interesting about it is then when you look on the health side, you start to see pretty quickly, like it's not good for us either, you know? So, so people worry about, you know, things being hormonal and, and, you know, sometimes they say, well, I only get organic milk because I don't want all the extra hormones. Well, here's, here's the news, right? It's bovine growth formula. Like it's deeply, it's full of estrogen. Even if you get like, you know, grass fed, no extra hormones added, like that's what it is. It's, it's growth formula for babies. So there's a lot of interesting things that come up when we look into this from different angles, but that's one that I think is an interesting thing that's starting to come up within Indian culture. It's like, oh, well, we have a problem here because we've always assumed that by not killing the cow, we're in compliance with our, our personal beliefs, right? And they're starting to discover like, well, it's, it's not working out that way. I think it is interesting that, um, you know, observing from the outside, it seems like yoga's had to kind of go through some identity struggles. I think that they faced accusations of being, you know, well, it's a religion. And then hyper-Christian people were like, well, it's, 
demonic worship and then right. there was like maybe a yeah like a reaction in the yoga world and like we must be as secular as possible uh, i don't know you can speak to that better as than i can but it seems a little bit like that's where a lot of yoga studios have gone is to try and like divorce themselves from that so that they can be super secular and very commercial um which i understand people trying to make a living but that's just sort of what i've observed Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, the umbrella of yoga and all the different disciplines that live under it have all these different spectrums. But for the most part, the way that we practice it in the West is all based upon Patanjali and his uh, yoga sutras and the eight limbs of yoga. So for the most part, we're all sort of following that same script. But you are 100% correct. I think yoga is a multi-billion dollar industry collectively at this point. Although just like any multi-billion dollar industry, only those at the very, very top are experiencing those billions, right? Um, and those who are really trying to change lives through yoga or at least bring awareness and, and enlightenment and have that mind-body-spirit connection are struggling in this now industry, right? Um, but one of the things that I feel has separated yoga from, you know, the idea of energy work and esoteric ideas and the philosophy itself is trying to make it so secular that, well, are we doing this because fill in the blank? Like, why? tell me why I should do this. And it's like, wait a minute. You're supposed to be aligning yourself and opening up new spaces within you. And then those, those wonderful things like compassion are supposed to become innate to your being, right? Um, I know that's what happened for me when I was practicing yoga. When I first practiced yoga, it made me want to think about things in a different way. It wasn't, you know, what brand of yoga pants am I wearing? Um, shout out to Lululemon. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, um, I do feel that we are in a place, and, and I learned this years ago where someone said, you have the opportunity to vote every single day, multiple times a day mm -hmm. with what you eat. And you mentioned Bob, the mechanic. <laughs> yep. And he was a vegan when I bet all he could get was like a baked potato maybe, right? So he was really fighting the good fight. And it would be awesome to understand how and why, but I do know in the ultra running community, veganism is so huge. I, I was a part of that community very briefly. Um, and it was so comforting because, uh, and I'm digressing a bit, but when you're a part of a community that everyone rallies together for similar causes, there's a lot more information that's shared and there's a lot more research that's done, it feels like. And that's how I felt in the running community with veganism. But one of the things that I think we sort of have to realize, and, and this is what's been sort of the thing that I tell people, is how awesome is it that you get to vote with your money? Mm -hmm. You don't have to think much about it. You just go, oh, do I want to offer my money over here? Do I, you know, do do I like what they stand for? I mean, this is this is sort of under that big umbrella of veganism, right? That big umbrella of compassion and environmentalism and just being a better human. Um, but then when you bring it down to the subset of of saving animals' lives, and and just 
you know, that sounds like a very heavy statement I just made and I'm careful with my words, but in a sense, that's exactly what you're doing, right? And it feels like you're not doing enough, but you're doing pl- plenty. It's, yeah, it's huge. And it's I huge. think that's the thing, you know, and trust me, I don't love saying what I'm about to say, but the fact of the matter, matter is at the moment we're living in, at least in the United States, voting with your money and your purchases is actually more powerful than actually voting at the voting booth. Oh, Bianca, you, you've said it all. <laughs> I mean, for one, many people under voting age, under legal voting age in the United States, have plenty of opportunity to spend their money and their parents' money and everybody else's money. And, and I'm so proud of the youth in a lot of ways because I feel like they show up in these spaces a lot more than ever before. But you know how it's working, everybody? Because when you can walk into a generic, typical grocer and you can see five different nut milks, that shows you that the powers that be, the people who only care about the money, they're not, I don't, I don't want to say there isn't someone on their board of directors that's ve- not vegan or vegan, but I do know that the lobbyists and, and these big business and pharma and all these governmental businesses work really hard and spend a lot of money so that you don't vote the opposite of what they want. But it's little podcasts like this and many, many out there that now we have real free speech. But you can see that it's working Mm -hmm. because 10 years ago, you couldn't. You had to go to Whole Foods. You had to go to a farmer's market. You had to strain some almonds and water and and do your best. Um, Or you had to eat pretty much a really generic, bland diet which was why people like your mother were afraid that their kid or or whoever was going to become malnutritioned, right? Which is so laughable nowadays, right? Because malnutrition people are those who have abundance of food and fast food restaurants and little markets on every corner. But anyway. High calorie, low nutrition. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is such, I mean, I feel, I feel like we're getting better at understanding that, but there's you know, if you go around on the street and you ask questions, you really do get a sense of, wow, I'm just in a special ecosystem where all my friends know this stuff. But really, it's not known. Um, but big business is seeing it, you guys. I mean, you can go to now like Taco Bell and get vegan stuff. Um, you can go to most food chains and they might have like a vegan burger. Barnes and Noble just launched and I think it's experimental to see if it goes, but Barnes and Noble's cafe is now as of this week serving a vegan breakfast sandwich. What? <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so this type of thing is happening. And I think that it's also it's worth noting and and this is a part oh I think this is heavier than you wanted me to get. Um let's do it. <laughs> We're in a flow. I, I was going to say, like, you know, for people who don't care about the animal side or think that they don't, right? Sure. Uh, you should also be concerned about this for humans because PTSD is rampant among slaughterhouse workers. Mm-hmm. Slaughterhouse workers have the highest industry, ra- industry rates of drug abuse, spousal abuse, suicide, right? Yes. It's a brutal job. Slaughterhouses are awful places. In order to do that job, you don't, it's, it's not a good scenario. And there's no way to make it a good scenario. So, you know, 
when we look at plant agriculture, there's plenty of labor rights abuses, human rights abuses going on, but they are, they have the potential to be fixed. They can be fixed with proper labor rights reform and implementation, people actually maintaining those labor rights, you have a different option. Whereas there's no way that you can take slaughterhouses and, and make it work psychologically. You know, the PTSD is inherent to the job in a way that it's not if your job is, say, peeling potatoes, stirring a vat of oats, right? It's just different. People, it's hard to look. I mean, certainly, if, if you are brave enough to take the time and find out, you can find footage. You can find photographs. You can find testimonials, right? What these people go through to put meat and dairy on people's plates, it's a very dehumanizing process. And there are members of the animal rights movement who are former slaughterhouse workers, who are former dairy farm workers, you know, who came to this for that reason. And there's other people who are very traumatized and very guarded and very defended because they can't see a way out. And I think that's a really important thing to note. And, you know, as we touched on earlier, you know, the way we do industrial animal agriculture, the, we're talking about massive amounts of pollution just from the poop, right? right. Just from that, you know, yeah. which is something nobody ever thinks about. So, you know, if you look at, in particular, pig farming, they have these massive lagoons, right? And then these are all, all these... All these places are located in typically impoverished areas, mm -hmm. communities of color. Mm -hmm. You're not seeing these types of industrial agriculture farms or slaughterhouses in well-heeled districts. Absolutely right? not. Right? Yeah. So, you know, there's a whole issue there. When you look at the contracts that places like Tyson have with their chicken farmers mm -hmm. it's like indentured servitude these farmers they're not they're living hand to mouth they're not making a good living they tend to have a lot of uh, antibiotic resistant illnesses mm -hmm. it's a really pernicious set of contracts you know that's not working out well 82 percent of starving children live in countries where food is fed to the animals and the animals are then eaten by western nations so if you don't have a lot of care or concern or worry about animals, don't worry. <laughs> Just look up the chain a little bit and what you're going to find is a really brutal system that really exacts a toll on human beings. And that's where, you know, sometimes people say, well, like, oh, veganism, it's for the privileged. They don't realize, like, yeah, that's us in Western nations. We right. are, we are the privileged. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. We are the privileged by eating a meat and dairy centered diet. And Absolutely. it comes at an incredible cost to communities within our nation, but also to human beings around the world. I love that you touched on that because in speaking in small groups of people who are not like-minded, which is a very heart chakra, throat chakra alignment experiment, right? Um, but it's really important to talk to people who this is very foreign to them and they're very 
passionate about their belief systems because when you talk to farmers or people, I shouldn't say farmers, people who feel like we are putting farmers out of business and and ranchers out of business. And I know I'm using like a collective word because that's usually what has been used in expressing their concerns back to me. And what I always tell them is, have you read the statistics of these big companies, as you mentioned, like Tyson, that actually put these small, small town farmers out of business, you know, and now a family business that's maybe been running for a hundred years is no longer. And so what you think you're supporting, you're not supporting, right? Right. Maybe, maybe if you go to a farmer's market and you buy something from them and they've slaughtered their own cow, maybe that's a different scenario, but that's probably not who we're talking about, right? There's, yeah, there's something I'm going to mention here that there's an, organiza- an organization called Transformation. So it's like transformation, but with the word farm in it, transformation, okay. right? They're, they're affiliated with Mercy for Animals, and they provide assistance to farmers who want to transition from livestock animal agriculture to plant agriculture. And uh, there's some really great testimonials and stories of them helping farmers shift. Um, it helps them become more profitable and get out of debt cycles with some of this big ag. And it also enables them to have a better quality of life and better health. And so exactly what you hit on here. You know, there's a, another documentary I'll really recommend. It was done by some young indigenous New Zealanders. It's called Milked. Mm. And they talk about, essentially, they expose the lie of humane dairy. And they show how, essentially, New Zealand's destroying its waterways and its water aquifers through intensive dairy farming. And they interview quite a few farmers. They actually interview farmers who talk about how hard it is on them. How difficult the job is and then how emotionally difficult it is on them to take the calves from the mothers who are screaming and crying for their babies. You know, they really expose that this is not a good deal for the farmers either. And one of the other things they bring up that's also interesting is that, you know, we'll see what happens with the world, but there's something called precision fermentation. And that's the process of creating bioidentical proteins and and whatnot uh, in vats of bacteria. So they're essentially have come up with a way to produce dairy milk without the cow. And it is very quickly on a route to becoming more financially efficient than anything involving a cow. Which, by the way, we already subsidize dairy and and livestock animal agriculture. Because it wouldn't be. Like, if you paid the actual price for meat and dairy that it costs, like, it would be, the prices would be so, you wouldn't even touch it, right? So the only reason the prices for meat and dairy are as low as they are in the United States is because our government subsidizes that. They make that within people's ability to buy, right? So, So now we're looking at a situation where these big corporate entities, they're going to want to shift precision fermentation as soon as they can because it's going to be cheaper for them and they'll get more of a profit margin off of producing meat and dairy that way. So anyone who thinks that they're saving a farmer's job by going out and buying meat and dairy, 
there is, an, there is a day not too far on the horizon, by some estimates, we're looking at less than 10 years, where those farmers are going to be out of work because we're going to be mass producing that stuff in vats. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's really fascinating because um, I feel like there are so many paths and journeys and avenues to get to a place where you can create just a normal lifestyle for yourself, right? And I think Bianca and I really wanted to express sort of these these thoughts that everybody sort of has, you know, we I feel like we touched on maybe some uncomfortable ideas, but things that you have probably heard. And now it's sort of like, well, now what? It's like, okay, yes, 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 you're right. I forgot how much, you know, I could be helping in so many different areas, but now what do I do? So I think what Bianca and I would love to do is have another session. How do you feel about that, Bianca? That sounds great. <laughs> and we are going to talk about how and, and a little bit more about our journeys so that you might be able to relate and understand that it's never too late, right? Um, and also how you can debunk some of these ideas that you're not getting enough protein and you know your bones are going to be frail and you're not going to be healthy and before we end today's episode I just want to say there was a time because my undergrad was in microbiology and and for a very small moment until I took physics I thought I could go to medical school <laughs> but I had a lot of friends who did and one of my favorite gifts to give them when they graduated was the China study because doctors do not learn anything about proactive medicine. It's not like Ayurvedic doctors and practitioners. It's very reactive. It's surgical. There's a need for it. But doctors themselves could be sitting with a patient telling them, hey, you need to lose some weight or we need to get your blood pressure down or, you know, but we have no idea how. <laughs> Just good luck, you know, start counting your calories, which if you follow anything in the the biospace, I mean, you might have learned that that's not even, it's not one calorie in, one calorie out. It's just not how the body works. The body is so wise, it doesn't need us overthinking it. But um, one of the things that we know in yoga is breath is everything, right? You know, we breathe in this delicious prana, this life force energy. I always tell my students that you're giving each cell of your body a delicious oxygen hug. But what about what we're doing to nourish those cells, to be proactive? You know, cancer's huge. Um, heart disease is huge. It is traveling all around the world. Everywhere that has, you know, fast food restaurants is seeing the American diet enter into their world. And what do they call it? The SAD diet? Standard, yeah. standard American diet. Yeah, and, and type 2 diabetes, which uh, we there's clinical papers showing it's reversible on a whole food plant-based diet. Oh, yeah, yeah. including heart disease. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, by the time you're experiencing these diseases, one thing could be leading to another, and it's it's time for everyone to think about all of this holistically, right? You know, it's it's fair to think about the animals, to think about the water supply and the environment and, you know, how you're spending your money and how you're voting every day and also think about yourself and think about your health and all of that as well. So 
Next episode, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that. Thank you all. If you made it through this episode, you are our favorite humans. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk party food. Tell you what, tell you what. Next time, we will talk party food. <laughs> all right, everyone. We will see you on part two. Mwah. <laughs> It's me, Breezy Bree, and you just finished listening to a brand new episode of Yoga Podcast. Did you know I started recording back in 2018 with almost 500 episodes, hundreds of those free audio yoga classes? I am so honored to guide you on your personal practice on and off of the mat. Check out my website, lovebreezybreeyoga.com, a link in the show notes will be provided along with lots of amazing information for your practice. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste.